This is firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs, introducing the new Firehouse Pub Steak Sub with savory steak, crispy fried onions, and our rich Belgian beer cheese sauce. On tap for a limited time. Order yours at firehousesubs.com today. Remember, a portion of every sub you buy helps provide life-saving equipment for first responders. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Limited time only, plus tax. Participating locations. Firehouse Subs will donate a minimum of $1 million in 2018 to the Firehouse Subs Public Safety Foundation by donating 0.13% of every purchase. This is Murderous Miners, Killer Kids, bringing you the frightening and truly insane tales of children with the thirst to kill. Kindergarten through 12th grade murderers. True stories thoroughly researched. Join us weekly for new tales of parents' worst nightmares on Murderous Miners, Killer Kids. Episode number three, Yellow Ribbons for Maddie. According to Sheila Clifton, it was an ordinary day. That day was November 3rd, 1998, and it would turn out to be a day that would irrevocably change the lives of two families, their community of Jacksonville, Florida, and gain national attention for the next two decades. The Lakewood area of Jacksonville was considered a safe, family-friendly environment. Steve and Sheila Clifton had lived there for over a decade and were raising two active daughters, 11-year-old Jessica and 8-year-old Madeline. Jesse and Maddie were students at San Jose Catholic, a religious institution whose foundations were laid by Sheila's family. The Cliftons were a close-knit, loving group whose lives revolved around their daughter's various activities, as well as a shared love of the outdoors with constant fishing and camping as a foursome. Jesse and Maddie enjoyed activities like basketball, piano lessons, gymnastics, and dance. Once chores, homework, and piano practice were completed, the pair looked forward to playing outside with their neighborhood friends until called in for dinner. So simple and so common in what seems now like a safer, more innocent time. Chores for that Tuesday, November 3rd, 1998, consisted of taking down and properly storing the family's Halloween decorations. Eight-year-old Maddie Clifton completed her responsibilities first that day, leaving her big sister Jessie inside finishing up. It is about 4.30 p.m., In the meantime, Sheila Clifton arrives home from work and she sees and speaks to Maddie before she heads outside, like normal. Not long after, Maddie comes back inside in search of a particular blue golf ball as a group of kids has assembled down the road to take turns chipping. She's instructed to search the border grass of their yard as Sheila begins to prepare the family's dinner. Jessie recalled jokingly asking Maddie to stop distracting her so she can complete her task and go play outside, too. Sheila recalled grabbing her youngest daughter by both cheeks and giving her a kiss, telling her to be safe and have fun, never realizing she wouldn't see her alive again. When it's time for dinner, Maddie can't be found. Jessie did eventually go out to play that day, but reports to Sheila that she didn't see Maddie at all and they were never together. 
She'd figured that her little sister and best friend had resumed chipping golf balls at the end of the street, but she hadn't had a reason to go check. Now that dinner was done, Maddie was nowhere to be seen and was not answering her mother and older sister's calls. In a panic, Sheila begins going door to door while Jessie hops on her bike and begins to search. At a house diagonally across from the Cliftons, 14-year-old Joshua Patrick Earl Phillips responds to Sheila's questioning at his front door, promptly says he will help look, and grabs a flashlight. His father is heard asking in the background, Who's Maddie? Sheila is frantic, and neighborhood kids and parents start really looking around for her. The authorities are called, and Maddie's father, Steve Clifton, arrives home shortly thereafter to a chaotic, confusing scene. Josh Phillips was by all accounts a nice, normal boy. At this time, nothing really made him a person of interest at all, although he would end up being interviewed multiple times over the next week. The Phillips family, Missy, Steve, and Josh, had lived in Lakewood, Florida for about two years, having moved there from Pennsylvania. It was widely reported that Josh's father, Steve Phillips, was a domineering man of six foot six who ruled his house with a stern hand. He employed very specific rules which prohibited friends in the house or playing outside after school. Josh considered himself to be isolated and reclusive. There would be mention of substance abuse. Domestic abuse was also evident. Missy Phillips was said to have suffered from depression. Josh fed his solitude by spending time with pets like his birds and beagle, along with copious amounts of screen time in the new digital world. Energetic, eight-year-old Maddie, the younger of the Clifton sisters, would remain missing for a week. Seven horrible, confusing days which saw the initial reward offered double to $100,000. A week which saw a neighbor suspected due to multiple allegations of sexual assault a decade or so earlier. This neighbor would fail a polygraph examination in relation to Maddie's disappearance, but would be cleared by a solid alibi. Investigators locked down the neighborhood for days feeling pretty secure that Maddie would be located somewhere on her own block. Steve Clifton would recall that he felt that he and Sheila were under suspicion. He remembered seeing camouflaged officers positioned in the woods behind his house. Sheriff Nat Glover would say in a later press conference that the whole neighborhood was under surveillance for days should a perpetrator attempt to remove evidence or Maddie from the area. He could not risk it. Under suspicion or not, the Clifton family continued their unceasing cooperation with authorities while making every public plea they could to keep this story at the forefront of the local news. The disappearance of the Clifton's beloved baby girl stimulated a nerve in this community. The Jacksonville Jaguars, as well as much of the city, wore yellow ribbons to keep the search for Maddie at the center of the city's attention. Strangers, family members, and neighbors, including Josh, somehow kept up the frenzied search, which continuously yielded nothing. 
Sheila Clifton would later say when interviewed that it was as if Maddie had gone out the door to play and simply vanished. It was on the following Tuesday that the search would slam to a dumbfounding end. Missy Phillips is reported to have gone into her son Josh's bedroom on the morning of Tuesday, November 10th, to clean it up. Some reports indicated that she smelled something foul, but she does not specifically ever say this in any of her taped interviews. Whatever the case may be, she entered and upon noticing wet carpet at the base of Josh's waterbed, began to take the bed apart. Maddie Clifton's little feet, clad in white ankle socks, became visible. In horror and disbelief, Missy alerts the officer patrolling the neighborhood to come with her and where she reveals her heartbreaking discovery. Maddie's dead body, in her house, under the bed where her 14-year-old boy has slept for the past seven nights. Josh Phillips is picked up from school and transported to the police department for questioning. His father is there for the questioning, although Missy says she wasn't allowed in, as officers told her the interrogation room was too small for all of them. Law enforcement descend on the Phillips home, cordoning it off in that telltale way which means nothing good. Yellow ribbons of hope had become that yellow crime scene tape we dread. Over at the Cliftons, the somber tone of investigators made it pretty clear that they had news and it wasn't good. Even before they were sat down on their living room couch, the air told the truth. Jesse, who at 11 years old was being shielded from much of the chaos, had been mostly cloistered at her grandma's house around the corner. On this Tuesday morning... She's upstairs with the officer who's acting as her victim's right advocate when that officer's summoned downstairs via radio and she doesn't return. Jesse eventually ventures down and encounters scores of friends, detectives, and family members, teary-eyed and tense. It is then that she learns that her little sister Maddie is dead. While 14-year-old Josh Phillips is being questioned in custody, investigators begin the unenviable task of processing the scene of what was, undoubtedly, Maddie Clifton's murder. They find her body, shirt pulled up, naked from the waist down except for socks, stuffed under Josh's waterbed, entombed, Sheriff Glover would describe. It would later be determined that no sexual assault was evident or could be proven. Upon interview the day Maddie was found, Josh's statement was that Maddie came to his door and asked him to come out and play, even though they both knew he wasn't allowed. He goes and subsequently hits her with a baseball while they're playing, resulting in a gash on her face. She is screaming and crying, so he brings her inside, panicked because his father is due to arrive home at any minute. Josh says that, to stop her crying, he hits her in the head three times with a baseball bat and puts her in a large, empty cavity in the base of his waterbed. Maddie is still moaning, 
loud enough that after Steve Phillips arrives home from work, Josh gets Maddie out and stabs her so that his dad doesn't hear. He doesn't want to get in trouble for having a friend over. Once she is again securely hidden in the bed frame, Josh uses tape to seal the base up, making it essentially Maddie's coffin. Police then arrest Josh and officially charge him with first-degree murder as an adult. Searching his room yields extensive evidence, though it answers none of the questions people now have, especially why. No one could know that to this day in 2017. Not even Josh could adequately provide a clear answer as to why killing Maddie would be better than getting in trouble for regular, normal childhood behavior. His logic on that fateful day does not make sense to the presumably fully evolved adult brain. But what about to that of a child with fear and other emotions involved? It is now widely accepted knowledge that brains continue to develop until about 25 years of age. But this was not known in the late 90s. The tools Josh described as his murder weapons were still in his room, along with some other damning evidence. The baseball bat and the Leatherman multi-purpose tool with the knife were there, as were multiple rolls of tape. Febreze, incense, and other forms of air freshener were also found. Clothes had been piled around the area of the bed frame where Maddie's body lay, and a birdcage and dog kennel had a week's worth of waste inside, a likely ploy to confuse the nose as to the source of the ever-growing stench. Taped to Josh's headboard was a missing flyer for Maddie. Even more shockingly, there was a crumpled picture of Jesse Clifton on his nightstand, a picture which had gone missing at some point from inside the Clifton home. An empty picture frame still existed there. 14-year-old Josh Phillips' interrogation was not recorded or taped in any way, nor were both parents present. He did not sign a confession at that time, but did confess in graphic detail to his actions. Josh goes on to admit responsibility for the murder at varying intervals over the next 19 years, but to this day will not, or cannot, explicitly voice why this tragedy occurred. Richard Nichols was retained as Josh's defense attorney, and he presented a peculiar defense. He literally called no witnesses, not Josh, not any medical experts or psychologists, not character witnesses or even his parents. The fact that Josh murdered Maddie Clifton was not what this trial was seemingly about. The defense preferred the evidence be laid out by the prosecution, after which they would have two closing arguments to refute the allegations. It seems as though what was on trial here was how abused was Josh at home and how premeditated was Maddie's murder. 
Nichols was really counting on a conviction on a lesser charge. He was so set on it that he did not present what could have been crucial evidence in order to avoid having to call a witness. Although the Phillips family had hired a neurologist who reported back findings of bilateral frontal lobe lesions, the defense would have been required to call him as a witness in open court, making him subject to cross-examination. For whatever reason, the lesions would never be brought up, although it seems that, if true, such evidence may have offered a startling insight into Josh's behavior. In the defense's opening statement, the key elements presented are that he hit her in the head by accident with a baseball, and the murder occurred because he was afraid he would get in trouble for playing outside before his parents got home. The defense rests without having called any witnesses. The prosecution's case presented the implication that, in the hours surrounding the crime, Josh had viewed and downloaded pornographic images on the computer in his bedroom, although prosecutors did not imply that sex was a mitigating factor in this crime, nor was any evidence of sexual assault present. Maddie's dad, Steve Clifton, testifies that he had banned the girls from playing with Josh due to the age difference and because there had been a few incidents where Josh had made inappropriate comments while the girls were in his presence. There had also been reports that the Clifton's home had recently been burglarized a few times. The police found evidence that the break-ins had occurred. Steve Clifton had noticed pry marks on the windows, a missing staple gun, but mysterious staples in all kinds of places throughout his home and property. And missing items like that frame missing his picture the picture that was sitting on the nightstand while Josh helped look for Maddie all week long. The defense's strategy also included two closing arguments sandwiched around the prosecution's close. Unbeknownst to anyone at the time, Richard Nichols chose to use a closing argument that he had already used in another case that he didn't even win. He stated that although the crime may have sounded like something out of a Stephen King horror novel, it wasn't premeditated, and that was the factor that made this crime manslaughter under the law. He may have committed a monstrous act, but his client wasn't a monster. The defense's minimalist strategy, along with the recycled closing argument, proved unsuccessful this time as well, and in July of 1999, Joshua Patrick Earl Phillips was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Maddie Clifton at 15 years old. He would now be subject to the mandatory life sentence without parole, which he received on August 20, 1999. At sentencing, the judge declared that he did not see Josh as a child, as his monstrous act made him an adult. After the trial, the judge made some trial evidence public, including an unaddressed, handwritten, one-page letter that was found in the cell in which Josh was housed immediately following his arrest. It included, I can only imagine how hard this is for you. I can't tell you how sorry and guilty I feel. 
Every night I think to myself, if only I could have reacted better to the situation and not have been thinking about getting in trouble. I didn't think about the situation. I was stupid and only thought about what trouble I'd be in, even though it was an accident. I was so damn stupid. I didn't want my dad angry at me, and I guess I did it to be safe from him. But it wasn't worth it. I made a huge mistake. I'm so sorry. I can only beg for your forgiveness. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Josh has always been sorry and always been remorseful, but the fact that he does not even really ever speak about the details of the case when interviewed does not win over many supporters. The response to his initial appeal was filed on February 6, 2002, and actually sheds more light onto the facts of this case than could be found when researching the original trial, and reiterates the first assertion that the initial blow with the baseball was accidental. The document states the details that follow. A neighbor's grandma saw Josh sneak up on Maddie through a window but determined it was just child's play. When Josh went outside to help Jesse and Sheila search for Maddie, he was acting normal, but he looked freshly showered. Josh was initially questioned the day after Maddie disappeared. He told investigators that he had seen her, but they hadn't played together. The Phillips shed was searched, and their house was searched on three separate occasions, although the search dogs never entered into the premises. Josh was interviewed three to four days after the murder, in his room, laying on his bed. The attack occurred in three distinct stages. Initial three strikes to the head with the bat, which would have been fatal within 30 minutes. Followed by two stabs to the neck, Maddie's windpipe was purposely perforated. Followed by... Nine stab wounds inflicted post-mortem. Maddie was removed and returned back to the tomb underneath the waterbed each time. Maddie's little hand clutched a bracket from underneath the bed, proving that she was alive under there for at least some amount of time and could have been saved. We will get back to the show in a minute, but first, a little break. If you're anything like me, every once in a while you may get a crazy idea, like starting a podcast, for instance. When an overwhelming amount of questions such as, where do I start? How do I make it sound good? Or how do I get it on iTunes crop up? You can find the support you need with Resonate Recordings. They offer high quality podcast production and comprehensive podcast launch services that will allow you to save time and launch a professional sounding podcast in no time. If you're a podcast fan, you have surely heard their work on Sworn, Up and Vanished, and The Cleaning of John Doe. Just think, that could be you one day. From cover art to theme music, equipment recommendations, recording training, mixing, editing, and producing, they will be able to help you meet your podcasting needs. Right now, you can go to ResonateRecordings.com to get your first episode produced for free. To get your podcast sounding just how you want it to, go to ResonateRecordings.com. 
Now, back to the show. Appeal or not, the original sentence was confirmed. In 2004, Missy Phillips began seeking a new trial for her son based on his young age, and although she did not find success, Josh would be granted a resentencing hearing due to the 2012 Supreme Court ruling making life without parole sentences unconstitutional for juveniles per the Eighth Amendment. This leaves sentencing up to the judge and takes mandatory life off the table. Rightfully so, Maddie's mom, Sheila, had harsh criticism for the prospect. The defendant now wants a second chance to live a second life. When does Maddie get to appeal her death sentence? Should he ever be released from prison, I pray that I will no longer be on this earth. The resentencing finally began on August 7, 2017. A new sentence of 40 years plus probation is what the new defense team asked for. This time they would call several high-profile witnesses, including former state attorney Harry Shorstein, who prosecuted the original case. His testimony revolved around the emerging brain science mentioned earlier. He states that, had he known then that juveniles' brains developed way later than previously thought, he may have tried the case differently and not sought the first-degree murder charge. A clinical psychologist testified that he felt Josh was remorseful and rehabilitated, as based on his 19-year prison record, along with the certificates and accolades he'd earned since being incarcerated. He testified that, even knowing all the details of the crime, he felt pretty confident that Josh wouldn't reoffend if released. An Anglican priest also testified that he had met Josh when he was first entering the adult prison system at 15. He was in corrections at that time and said that coming into contact with Josh influenced him positively and helped him evolve into the religious professional he eventually became. Josh himself was able to read a prepared statement of allocution in open court, which stated, This is for the family of Maddie Clifton. I've wanted to say this for a very long time, and I'm grateful that this chance to do so in person has arrived. I don't pretend to know or understand your pain or to grasp the void I have created in your lives. I can say this. I do understand pain. I've become quite intimate with suffering growing up in prison. I've seen many dark things, and I've been some dark places. Many times throughout this journey, I've come directly close to ending my life just to escape it all. During these times, I was embroiled in a flurry of emotions and feelings. Guilt, despair, pain, hopelessness, fear, and shame. Each time, I was somehow able to continue on mostly because I couldn't stand to put my mother through any more trauma. She's been through enough. There were times when I was angry at her because I couldn't end my pain because of her love. Yet now I'm eternally grateful to her. I'm grateful to her because as I've grown up, I've learned the value of life. I've learned to see the beauty and joy in a world full of strife and experience the truth of unconditional love. I wish to God that I could have known this or understood this when I was 14. Had I, none of this would have come about. I had no clue what life meant, what death meant, nor the depths of suffering that would follow one act. I had no inkling of how long that suffering could last. I hadn't lived long enough to understand the time involved or what suffering really was. 
Even now, after all these years, it is just unfathomable to me that all this could have occurred. It tears my mind asunder to know that I stole such a precious life from you, from the world. I so wish I could take away your pain. I thank God that I have been able to continue on in life and grow, but not a day goes by that I don't think of what led me to where I'm at. Not in prison, but in life. I pray every day that you are able to live your lives in spite of the injury I have caused you. I'm supremely grateful to have an opportunity for physical freedom. If any joy arises in my heart, it's immediately tempered by knowing that these proceedings bring all involved once again face-to-face with the horror that occurred in 1998. When I walk the wreck yard here in chains, I look to the sky through mesh wiring and I thank God repeatedly for giving me hope. My next breath is always devoted to wishing peace and healing upon you all. My hopes, fears, and wishes probably mean nothing to you, but they are there all the same. May you know peace, may you be free from suffering, and may you feel the love that is the sustenance of life itself. May God bless you and heal your wounds as much as possible. The defense would rest, then Sheila, Jesse, and Steve Clifton would go on to testify about their experiences relating to Maddie's murder and their desire to see Josh remain in prison for life. Although the resentencing concluded in July 2017, it wasn't until November 17th that Judge Wallace reaffirmed the life sentence, fortuitously sidestepping the 40-year sentence requested by the defense. The prosecution focused on victim impact and lack of explanation from Josh. They had used every available opportunity to rehash every gruesome detail of the case to ensure Judge Wallace absorbed the full horror of the crime. Speculation into Josh's true motive comes up as well because when former state attorney Shorstein was arguing at trial, he presented an alternative to Josh's standard explanation, that there was no baseball game in strike. Instead, Maddie entered Josh's house after he had been absorbed in viewing depravity on the internet and he attacked her in a frenzy. Her murder was to ensure there would be no confession, so the fact that he killed her in stages instead of trying to render aid seems to support this assertion. Josh's subsequent lack of adequate explanation lends to the avoidance of admitting and taking responsibility for his true actions. In the end, Judge Wallace completely agreed. On November 17, 2017, Josh Phillips was once again sentenced to life without parole. He said he was sad to have to do it and he did not want to humiliate him further, but the Supreme Court decision allowed for the life sentence in extraordinary cases, and the murder of Maddie Clifton was a prime example of such. The Clifton family and the Jacksonville community had already been put through enough trauma and heartbreak not to have to be subjected to the thought of Maddie's killer back on the street. Josh Phillips is currently incarcerated at Cross City Correctional Institution in Dixie County, Florida, 
serving out his life sentence, which will come under automatic review after 25 years in 2023. Following Josh's apologetic statement in court, Maddie's sister said that it was good to hear, although it still doesn't change anything, but I think it needed to be said. Jesse Clifton has since moved back into her childhood home, still owned by her dad, located 50 yards from where her sister was murdered. It was the last place that they were all together. She didn't feel alone and was truly happy. This concludes episode number three, Yellow Ribbons for Maddie. Please join us next week for episode number four, Catherine and Curtis Jones on Murderous Minors, Killer Kids. For more Murderous Minors online, check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and at MurderousMinersPodcast at gmail.com, and visit ResonateRecordings.com for all your podcast production needs. Firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs, introducing the new Firehouse Pub Steak Sub with savory steak, crispy fried onions, and our rich Belgian beer cheese sauce. On tap for a limited time. Order yours at firehousesubs.com today. Remember, a portion of every sub you buy helps provide life saving equipment for first responders. Firehouse Subs, enjoy more subs, save more lives. Limited time only, plus tax, participating locations. Firehouse Subs will donate a minimum of $1 million in 2018 to the Firehouse Subs Public Safety Foundation by donating 0.13% of every purchase.